I have never been committed to those things. Now maybe well, because you're polyamorous, dude. I'm polyeros, bro. My desires are like just, <laughs> you know. Yo, what's going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And fucking finally, we're going to get to the Patreon poll chosen episode topic this week. From politics March of, of 2017. Cer- <laughs> Probably. On the politics of uncertainty versus the politics of certainty, which kind of came based on a comment that I made in passing, which was half flippant and half real, which is pretty much everything that comes out of my mouth. Exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. About a book project that I would love to do in the future. And um, so I'm going to take this semi-serious idea as I've been thinking about it. I mean, I have been thinking about it over the months anyway, Um, and Troy has now forced me to try to uh, coalesce it into something that we can actually BS about on this podcast, so we are going to bandy that idea about a little bit. Yeah, dude? Yeah. Sweet. Sounds good. Before we do that, we do want to mention that if you want to support us in tangible ways, you can go to patreon.com slash dawn. You get access there to things like the monthly newsletter we send out with extra sticky leaves and shitty minutes, bonus episodes and other goodies. That is right. And you can recommend topics that we will discuss in 2023 for your (laughs) delight. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, But of course, we also do want to give a shout out to our lovely sponsors over at Mubi, who have been so patient with us during this weird isolation quarantine time. They've been so lovely to continue sponsoring us, um, even though we haven't been as frequent with our episodes as previous. Uh, we have, but we're getting back on track. My life is sort of back in order. I don't feel as sick anymore, and I'm going to stop making excuses. And I'm just going to talk about how amazing Movie is. Movie is a streaming service. Uh, they have a 30-day perfectly curated rotation of 30 films that go through a type of slaughterhouse rotation where a film has a life for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, it drops off. And so what that means is that there's a new film added every single day that's nice and fresh, and um, they basically specialize in like indie films festival darlings they do like experimental avant-garde they do films from all over the world they do films by masterpiece filmmakers they do weird films that you wouldn't expect genre films they do trash films they do all kinds of amazing stuff um their library is always exciting and i just want to take a minute to talk about what's in my library that is super exciting. And then Troy and I actually have a film that's in both of our libraries that we just want to talk about because it just sounds so fucking awesome. But anyway, uh, listen to this lineup of films that I have right now to choose from. I have The Graduate. I have... Southland Tales. You ever seen Southland Tales? Yeah, I had that too. Man, that was, okay. that was quite the uh, the letdown from Darnie Darko. Or are you one okay, of those it- Southland Tales truthers? No, 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 no. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Southland Tales is no good, but I love how it's, it's labeled. Perfect failures is how it's labeled. <laughs> and for those of you that listen to Wisecrack, show me the meaning, or that are familiar with Wisecrack, or that found us through Wisecrack, 
Southland Tales is actually Jared's choice for the worst film ever made. So <laughs> we actually talked about this on a, on a Wisecrack podcast a while ago. I so, do wonder if that's aged better now that there's no expectations for it. You can just enjoy it as a regular bad film. I think he tried it and he said, no, nah, dude, it's still fucking awful. But he probably still had the <laughs> expectations. So um, I have a couple of films from Godard and this filmmaking collective that Godard was a part of. So I've got a couple of Godard films. Um, I've got The Deer Hunter. Um, I've got... Is that the one with uh, Colin Farrell? Oh, no, you the, the Robert De Niro one you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then what else do I have here? Hold on. I, there was another one that I wanted to share. Oh, and then... Um, uh, a Godard film called Tout Va Bien, which I have actually seen before, which is really good. And then here's the film that Troy and I both want to talk about because it just sounds so fucking awesome. It's called Surf Nazis Must Die. Yeah, let Troy, me just read the synopsis. Can you read? Yeah, yeah can you read the synopsis? <laughs> the synopsis is this. In the near future, a major earthquake has devastated California's coastline. But a more terrifying threat erupts. The rise of a wretched Reich. Beaches have become battlefields ruled by ruthless gangs, which are ruled by the surf Nazis. Only one person is powerful enough to stop them. A brave mother. Yes! And I love it because <laughs> in the description above it says, This journey of retribution doubles as an irrefutable manifesto of the singular transgressive power of lowbrow art. I'm watching this as soon as we finish recording. That's all I'm saying. So if you want access to this, this amazing kind of library of films, this is what you get on a constant basis. Go to mubi.com slash owls at dawn. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash owls at dawn. And you'll get a free uh, 30-day extended trial. So mubi.com slash owls at dawn. And you'll get a 30-day extended trial courtesy of the lovely people at Mubi. And as we like to say, we'll see you at the movies. <laughs> Can I just read the first line of the first review for this film on movie? Yes, please. Please <laughs> it's do. It's just, wow, this is a really stupid mess. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. Oh, God. I cannot wait. All right, sweet. So now we'll jump into our podcast, everybody. we got to start off the show the way we start off every friggin' episode. It's with the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about whatever it is that is chapping our hide from that particular week or a couple weeks or whatever. And it is Troy's turn this week. So dude, what's got y'all in a tizzy? Yeah, man. So we've been in this, uh, you know, coronavirus lockdown for the last, uh, what, month or so? I don't even know. The time has no meaning anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, there's one... um, it's not just one, but there's one, especially one sort of take that's been out there that's, I think, the most annoying take. When someone tries to take something um, and make, like, a philosophical statement or maybe some, like, grand uh, moral statement about the meaning behind the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And that's the idea that actually we human beings are the virus and COVID-19 mm-hmm. is the immune system of the Earth finally kicking uh, in yes. the gear. To, to stop us from uh, destroying the planet or whatever. That's um, right. And taken as evidence of that is something like, and I, I've talked about this before too on the podcast, it's, you know, a fact that um, there's, you know, a lot less pollution in the last month than there typically is. Carbon emissions um, have plummeted. Um, the, the like, native species are returning to their ecosystems, yada, yada, yada. And there's lots of good jokes on the internet about that, right? Um, but... While that's certainly true, and I think, you know, there's something we should take out of the fact that uh, 
while the pandemic is you know causing lots of suffering and death and it's a bad thing it's also um indirectly causing things like that that are in and of themselves in isolation good right the less pollution carbon emissions um plummeting stuff like that so uh but the idea of taking that evidence and formulating it into this take about you know us being the the virus and, and um, COVID-19 being the immune system it's wrong for many reasons, but the one main reason that I think is important to focus on um, is the idea that if if we're the virus and coronavirus is actually the immune system, it's doing a really shitty job at getting rid of the actual diseased cells, right? Hmm. Because it's actually targeting the people who tend to emit the least uh, amount of carbon <laughs> emissions, and it's targeting, like, you know, um, people who live in, in like, uh, you know, dense urban areas in the United States or um, older people who uh, are weaker um, and aren't necessarily like the ones who are uh, destroying the earth, right? Like, if, if, if coronavirus wanted to actually wipe out the people who are destroying the earth, it would be like the CEO virus or something like that, or the Wall Street <laughs> virus, right? And it just, but this virus is magically targeting only people who make, you know, $2.5 million or more. It's really interesting. Like, only the capital O virus. Yeah, only people who like wear suits and ties are dying. This is really interesting. I wonder why this is happening. It's totally a fluke. Um, but of course it's not, right? It's because the, you know, coronavirus isn't rational. Um, and part of the problem with this take is that it's assuming some sort of like rational system where the earth has like, uh, um, a standard where it's doing better or worse. And clearly what we're doing is making the earth worse. And so therefore, um, it, the earth needs to like counterbalance itself by producing the Godzilla to come and defend itself or whatever. Uh, mm. And that's got philosophical problems too, right? Like the, the idea that there's some like teleological end to the earth that we're destroying. It's like, no, we're not, right? The earth is fine. No one's going to destroy the earth. When we talk about us destroying the earth, only the sun's going to do that, right? Or maybe like a meteor or something, right? Um, we're not doing that. We're making the world worse for living things and for ourselves. <laughs> That's the mm. thing we should be focusing on. Um, not that we're somehow like like upsetting Gaia or something by emitting right. uh, carbon into the atmosphere. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really don't like that take. I think it uh, it's usually well intended in the sense that it's trying to bring some like environmental thinking to the fore, right? I'm mean, gonna talk about how, in some sense, sort of like human happiness is not the only end that matters. And I'm fully on board with that idea, but this is the exact wrong way to think about it, I think. Hmm. What do you think? There's there's three things. I'm trying to remember all three of them. I can only remember two at a time for some reason. I keep losing one, then I remember one, and then I forget the other two, so I'll try to work through them. One, ontologically, it seems to assume a distinction between nature and culture. So it's actually a very interesting modern narrative that somehow we are other than mm -hmm. nature, um, that we are somehow an exception of like that we are ontologically different than um two it flirts with eco-fascism and it almost seems to valorize the death of humans and so there's actually kind of almost an anti-human strain in this as well and then third this really fits i think within a lot of the debates that you find over the terminology of the anthropocene versus the capitalocene now it's analogous 
but there's a there's a similarity insofar as the debate between how do we term this new geological epoch? Is it the Anthropocene? Is that even an appropriate term? And then you have other people who come along, like Jason Moore, um, some people who are actually going to be our guests on the podcast hopefully next week, my friends Anna and Tash, who are the ones who started the Climate Justice Collective uh, here in Sydney that has now branched out and it's got uh, chapters all over. But they're going to come on and not talk about this per se. They'll talk about like social reproduction theory, but I digress. But one of the things that they'll emphasize is that we need to not speak about the Anthropocene because it's not humans per se, but actually it's capital that is the problem that has infused pollution to such high degrees that it has caused warming, that has caused issues with regards to uh, uh, climate uh, climate balancing, right, which has caused climate breakdown. So again, there seems to be another problem. If we are the virus, who is the we of whom you speak? If it's just simply humans, then you might be misattributing the uh, the negative effects, the kind of cancerous or viral effects to the wrong subjects, to the wrong entities. So those are the three things that I think immediately just come to mind that are really, I think, inherently problematic about that logic. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the trend towards ecofascism is an important one, right? Because there is this tendency to blame all human beings as if there's like a collective human committee that decides, you know what we should do? We should destroy the Earth's resources, right? And then we all go and do it as a, as a collective with like, um, you know, uh, disparate or a sort of like equally um, held responsibility for what we're doing. And that's just mm. not at all the case, right? And it's always the case that people who don't really contribute much towards the damage or the harm are the ones who end up suffering the consequences. And those with you know, immense wealth and power that were able to use their resources and means to escape any responsibility for um for what they've contributed towards. And that's yeah. pretty much what ecofascism tends to do is to uh, really incorrectly um, like level out uh, responsibility for what's occurring. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, it's not that these people are fascists. They're not eco-fascists. I, I guarantee if you sat down with them, like you said, it's well-intentioned. There wouldn't be like, yes, we should, humans need to die for population control or so that we stop polluting. Um, but the problem is, is that the logic still operates under similar formal conditions, you know? And and I think that's an issue. And I just thought of actually a fourth issue that I didn't bring up before. It seems to over place an overemphasis on us as consumers rather than actually, again, looking at what I would say is a more stringent and acute critique of, of let's say, environmental problems, climate problems, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is that it's actually about the modes of production, that are really the problem. And this goes down to the debates that you oftentimes get in environmental concern or environmental circles about, you know, is it about uh, degrowth and reducing consumption? Is it about like issues of production, changing the means, the means of production and investment, capital investment? Like how do we, how do we frame the problem? And then kind of like, how do we try to articulate solutions? And this whole, we are the virus um, rhetoric seems to just place the blame squarely onto us as uh, human beings as a, a homogenous entity and our problems of uh, of consumption really is what the the argument is and, like nobody's really going like ah yeah it's about like uh, capital investment into fossil fuels that's been the issue like yeah some people might do that but generally the just the 
the bro or the Instagram model that is like, we are the virus, like, look at the dolphins are swimming in the canals in Venice and shit like that. They're basically just using this as a cliche to be like, oh, like, peace and love, man, let's just not eat so much red meat kind of shit is usually how it comes across. And and I feel like it's just playing fast and loose too much with these concepts. And we need to be like a little bit careful so that we can be a little bit more rigorous and then maybe have a little bit more of like a, an acute target to actually what is the problem. Um, and then this isn't to say that there haven't been, like you even mentioned, that there haven't been some interesting side effects of, um, of this virus kind of halting earth for a bit, halting the flow of capital, halting the flow of... Uh, the transportation of commodities, halting the production of pollution and the consumption of plastics and um, all kinds of things, you know, like those things all need to be considered, but we just need to do some like serious lifting if we're going to try to make, you know, statements that are so general like that. Yeah, I mean, the the lesson we should really take from it, or at least one lesson we should take is, look, the production has halted throughout the world, right? But other than, you know, outside of the actual um, damage done, harm done by the virus itself, the, everything's fine, <laughs> right? Um, we could actually have a world um, that didn't uh, revolve entirely around like this uh, mass production. And we'd probably be okay. And the world might be better off and we might be better off in the end. And so we should take that as an opportunity to look at things and say, hey, you know, the, the world doesn't have to um, exist the way that it did uh, three months ago. Um, and then once the virus is gone, not just go straight back into um, things as normal. Yeah, now, yeah. All, here's all what's interesting. About, oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, yeah. Just to, to no. finish off, there's all this talk about the you know the cure uh, not being worse than the disease, right? But then what's always you know kind of uh, pushed to the side and not reflected upon is the fact that well, all the damage being done economically and otherwise is by choice, right? This is just a choice about how things are, right? Um, it's a choice that people, when unemployed, are not going to have the means of subsistence, right? Um, we could do otherwise, and plenty of countries are doing uh, different things um, than the U.S. is doing in response to that. And uh, it's, it's just, um, I'm hearing this especially from students um, who are, you know, worrying about um, this idea of the lockdown itself causing more damage and more harm than the than the actual disease and the pandemic itself. Is there's this assumption that as much as the disease is just a natural phenomenon that we can't really control and we only have to sort of manage around it, you know, um, economic circumstances are the same. That's just the way that things are, right? Um, and so there's nothing we can do other than to sort of manage it, uh, the, the damage on the back end. And um, it just really exposes the fact that this, this logic has been internalized um, such that it's assumed that economics is just an ironclad law of nature. And uh, um, the response that we have um, needs to like, you know, satisfy the, uh, the gods of, of um, economics as much as it sort of manages around the gods of nature and disease. Yeah. The gods of growth, the gods of productivity, the gods of Wall Street evaluation to make sure that corporations' assets are still valued at the appropriate level so they can continue to speculate on them because God knows if that goes out of whack, then the world can't operate, right? So that's really the kind of, when they say let's make sure that the cure isn't worse than the disease, what they mean is the cure to what? They don't mean the cure to a healthy society. They don't mean the cure to humanity's flourishing. They don't mean the cure to the benefit of uh, all human beings on the planet. They mean let's make sure that we don't fuck up the exponential increase of capital accumulation. That's what they mean. Yeah, it's really a way of saying just make sure you know that when this is over, we're going back to normal. Exactly. Don't get any, don't get any ideas. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I did hear something interesting. This is kind of a side note. Um, apparently, the cocaine economy has really halted because, you know, cocaine's a party drug, right? And, like, yeah, some people are still, like, partying at home and shit like that, but the amount of cocaine consumption has, like, drastically decreased that it's actually affecting Latin American cartels and economies. <laughs> I want to see some fucking numbers on this. This is really fucking interesting, I think. Like, apparently weed consumption has gone up, but cocaine has gone drastically down. And obviously cocaine is a huge cash crop. But it's so funny because when things are operating quote-unquote normally, the rates of consumption and the rates of production are within, you know, um, like degrees of, of error. They're, you know, relatively assumable, predictable, you know? Um you know, you can look year over year and there's, you know, some fluctuation, but it's generally, it, there's a trajectory. But then when there's all of a sudden some kind of huge break like this, you really start to realize that what the economy is, and this is something that Marx, I think, you know, really teaches us more than anything, is that the economy is a process. He talks about capital as being a social relation. And so what you get is that the economy is uh, is movement. It's not a thing. It's not an entity. It's not there. It's actually the flow of movement um, that takes place at particular rates and speeds towards particular ends, towards particular activities of accumulation and, uh, and profit maximization and things like that. But it's a process. It's movement. And when that movement stops, you really start to then see like the bare bones of the economy totally exposed because it just – it like – all of its distortions and things like that come to the fore. Like apparently potato production in, I can't remember what country it is, is like uh, overblown. So people are like asking, uh, so the producers yeah, are asking. French fries. <laughs> where, 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 where was it? Uh, I forget where, but yeah, eat a lot of French fries has been the... Uh... Yeah, they want people to eat like double the amount of fucking <laughs> potatoes and shit like that because they just have too many fucking potatoes. So it's like, it's really interesting that it's all about movement. It's about production and consumption as flow and when that flow gets interrupted you really start to be like oh fuck man like it's kind of in a weird way arbitrary but it's only arbitrary based on like path dependencies or tendencies that have accumulated to whatever point in history um we're currently examining right and so it's just i don't know it's just kind of funny to see the lid taken off of the quote unquote global economy yeah, I mean, nothing's more illustrative of that than the, the, the uh, dozens and dozens of oil tankers that are sitting off the coast of California or wherever it is, um, waiting to be put somewhere because all the uh, warehouses and storage facilities on land are full. Mm. <laughs> right, right. That's what I'm saying, man. Fucking give me some land and I'll take some of the oil, barrels of oil <laughs> off your hand. You can pay me $40 to uh, pretend that I can have some <laughs> oil storage or some shit. I don't know. Yeah, man. No, it is. Uh, uh, did you see the documentary, the Michael Moore documentary that everyone got pissed about? I mean, he was the producer, like Jeff, someone, whatever, called like no, Planet no, of I the heard Humans. About it, but I, no, I haven't. I haven't seen it. Is it on YouTube? Yeah, it is on YouTube. Um, it's on Michael Moore's page, and I think you just go to planetofthehumans.com. But basically, people thought that they were flirting with like a type of Malthusian population control argument. They basically they they criticize the Green Movement for being too in bed with uh, like Wall Street and big business and that uh, that capital investment has sullied all of the um, efforts and endeavors towards like moving to sustainable economies and that really that, that, um, it's not as pure as, you know, like Al Gore and Bill McKibben and all of these like leading activists want us to think, but that actually you got uh, nefarious capital standing behind it, which is partly true, right? But the problem is, is um, a lot of people have said that they've 
misrepresented a lot of these like uh, leading activists in the climate movement and um, stuff like that. And then a lot of people have also been quite critical of the the hinting that the only that the only solution that really is offered in the film seems to be that um, we need to like reduce population, which isn't what they say. They don't explicitly say that, but they do kind of quote some stuff from the United Nations where it's like, yeah, you know, population is overgrowing and their whole argument is, is you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet kind of thing, right? So it leads to a type of Malthusian um, logic maybe, um, and so it's gotten a lot of shit for it. But it's an interesting documentary at least to, because of the shit storm that it's caused, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I haven't seen it, but you know, the question always when it comes to the idea of like decreasing population is decreasing population where? Because <laughs> whenever um, the, the, the people who are kind of tilting toward the eco-fascism uh, say that stuff, then it's always about people in third world countries who aren't really contributing all that much to um, <laughs> you know, global environmental damage. So once uh, someone starts talking about uh, uh, decreasing population in wealthy countries, but they don't need to do that because population decreasing is already happening largely <laughs> right. in those countries. So, um, yeah, it just it really gets the problem and the solution all wrong, it seems like. Totally, 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 totally. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. we could watch that at some point and talk about it a bit. That might be fun. Oh, yeah. That would be kind of good. It might be actually good to talk about that with um, with actually the people who are going to be our guests next week, too. Or at least one of them, since that's kind of their whole vibe. Or maybe someone else we can get on as well, but that would be kind of interesting, huh? Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Let's move on to the main segment. All right. So, the patron-sponsored episode... Um, for this period is on the politics of certainty versus the politics of uncertainty. And as Austin mentioned earlier in the episode, this was kind of an, it was basically just an off the cuff comment that you made, what, like last year, maybe? Yeah. I think at the end of the year at some point. Yeah. And it's, it's an intriguing idea. And, and, um, you, as far as I know, haven't done anything really substantive with it yet, right? In terms of like writing a paper or anything, it's just kind of an idea that's been floating around in your head, right? Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, so I mean, I don't remember who recommended it for the uh, patron-sponsored episode, but good on you for forcing Austin to actually come up with something <laughs> substantive. But you know, that said, we're not, you know, um, this isn't like a fully fledged out thesis or anything I think that you have, but the idea would is that um, maybe you can sort of flesh out some of the ideas, we can talk about them and riff back and forth and see if uh, uh, we can do anything with this uh, this notion of applying uh, like a, what would you call it, like a political epistemology or something like that maybe? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. You know what? There was a tweet this past week, and I wish I, I could find it. I, I don't even remember enough of the substance of the tweet to even search for it on Twitter, but it was from someone who's a pretty popular blue check. I think she's a blue check. Left commentator on Twitter. I'm, I think she's a journalist, too, um, at one of those like smaller indie outlets or whatever. But... um. She she was criticizing somebody for not being principled, basically. For like, oh, you know what? She was criticizing Crystal Ball. Did you see all of that shit that Crystal Ball got into this past week? You know Crystal? Yeah, I mean, I think I heard about it offhand, but I didn't really look into it much. Same. I didn't really pay attention much to it either, um, just because I've been so over Twitter BS lately that I have had not much time. But it came across my attention, and she was criticizing, this other woman was criticizing Crystal Ball for like, not being ideal. Oh, it was something along the lines of this is what happens when you don't have an ideology is basically what she said, right? 
And I almost quote tweeted it, quote retweeted it, but then I just decided not to be an asshole, which is most of the time uh, what I do. I start to do something to be snarky or to like be rude, and then I'm like, no, man, don't do that. I'm too nice sometimes for that (laughs) shit. But my thought was this. My thought was like, yeah, it's much better to just be fucking dogmatist and claim some ideology when I would say that you don't even fucking understand what your ideology is because you're laying claim to some domain of knowledge that you're probably not even truly uh, laying claim to because knowledge is much more complex and dirty than that. And we have this like system of valorization um, uh, among certain people in the left, let's call it like their political epistemology, which is that like, yeah, we have to just uh, lay hold to our ideological position. And then they kind of hold that up as though it's like this ethical, moral, principled position, and if you don't have that, then you're a fucking idiot. And of course, they're the ones who determine the terms by which the other people are unprincipled and they're principled. So again, there's a purity politics here, this kind of like creating an us versus them mentality. And all of this shit I can't stand. One, the dogmatism. Two, the ignorance of what ideology is. Three, the us versus them mentality. I just, I get so frustrated with this online. And it seems that so much, especially of blue check Twitter, but I'm going to say left Twitter in particular, that seems to operate according to what I might call a politics of certainty. And this politics of certainty is so narrowly defined, and then it's used as a bludgeon to beat anybody else that doesn't fit within that predefined bias. And I think that it really does a disservice to what politeia could be, to what politics could be, to what the construction of the good city or a good life should be. And I don't know. I just find it to be extremely restrictive and it just fucking drives me crazy, man. And it just seems to be the mode of discourse of the cool left on Twitter. And I'm tired of it. That's interesting, dude. Like there's an analogy here between a debate that happens in um, normative ethics and sort of what what is the use and point of moral principles? And so there's kind of this debate about like universalists versus particularists, which is like the universalist would be like the utilitarian who thinks that um, you can sort of uh, deduce what you should do in any uh, situation, right? To like, complete a practical syllogism using the utility principle, right? Whatever creates the, the greatest amount of happiness or utility for the greatest number or whatever. And you can use that universal principle and sort of figure out what to do in every single situation. And then there's like the particularists who are usually like Aristotelian or something, right? Where they want to say that there's no sort of general universal principle you can use to tell you what to do in any individual situation. There's more give and take than that, right? And it seems like both kind of have the idea wrong in some way. Um, there's, there's some sort of like, I don't, I don't want to call it a middle ground because I don't think it's like a middle ground in the sense of like having your cake and eating it too. But some sense in which principles do have a role in um, helping you deliberate and figure out what to do, right, and what to think. But it can't be such that it's some sort of like external standard given by God that you just like take from down from Mount Sinai and then follow slavishly, right? It's got to have some other role in um, informing your intentions and informing your actions and stuff than that. And... Uh, I don't know that I had a, a really systematic way of thinking about it. There's some sense in which like principles have to kind of guide you in a way. Um, and they have to sort of give explanations for why you do what you do. But then they can't be such a thing as to sort of be like chains on your actions and on your intentions. Things like externally hold you 
and and make you do what you do, which is what the, what the term ideology seems to be doing in right. that sort of dogmatism, right? Where it's just like, uh, whenever I, I come across a situation, I go back to my little business card in my pocket or my index card in my pocket, and it tells me about my ideology and then figure that's out right. what I should think about this. And that's just totally getting the idea of what the role the principles should play um, in your thinking. That's basically yeah, not just to, being a slave to an idea. Yeah, and not, not to play devil's advocate, the interlocutor would not say, oh, I've got everything figured out and I just go into my pocket and I pull out the business card and I've got X, Y, and Z already prepared for how I respond to every situation. However, what they don't understand is that there's a more subtle like, way that their dogmatism operates. It's properly ideological in the psychoanalytic sense, right? And it operates at a formal level that is almost like a hermeneutical grid that even if they think that they're being like a skeptic or they're being a rationalist or whatever the fuck language they want to use, like I'm just a scientific rationalist, I just follow the facts or whatever the fuck they want to say, what they don't understand is that there are still like limits and there are still formal restrictions that embed us, that predispose us to how it is that we operate in the world. Now everybody is subject to that tendency, but... The thing is, is I just have like an allergic reaction to reveling in my dogmatic or presuppositional tendencies, right? Like I know I have, I'm sorry, not dogmatic, my presuppositional tendencies. And it's when you revel in it that it becomes dogmatism. It's when you start bludgeoning people with it as a weapon that it becomes dogmatism. It's when you start thinking that somehow your quote unquote ideology, which really just means the framework of knowledge that you uh, subscribe to. It's intellectual assent, right? So this is also a problem because the, the, the use of the word ideology is very different than the psychoanalytic term. Um, but it's basically just the facts or the worldview, right? The Weltanschauung, the worldview that you hold to um, exists at a much more superficial level. And it doesn't actually allow for a sort of deeper engagement with how people think the uncertainties, the um, contradictions, the inconsistencies, the fears, the anxieties, the doubts. Like I wanted to tweet something the other day and I still, I'll probably tweet it at some point, but I wanted to say like, if you're a, a Marxist or a leftist of any type, what beliefs have you suppressed or have you ignored because of uh, peer pressure? And for me, I like to think about this for myself quite often. There are many things that I don't say online that I'm afraid to say because I'm afraid of backlash. Now, I'm a fucking people pleaser to the hilt, so that's just part of my problem. But there's also just a lot of stuff that I almost don't even allow myself in my intellectual journey to truly entertain and to explore as much as I would like sometimes for fear that it doesn't fit within the party line, so to speak. And once I sense that in myself, then I start to realize that there's a dogmatism that has infected me, right? And so when I see somebody that is trying to critique another person because they're not committed principally to their ideology enough, it just brings all of that up in me. And I'm like, this is just that religious dogmatism, but in a sort of like political or quote unquote secular guise. And that to me is very frustrating, you know, because it doesn't allow for the space of construction, for the space of creativity. It doesn't allow for the space of things to not fit within the already prescripted party line. 
even at a very sort of subtle and formal level, rather than just um, at the level of like substance and content, which is, um, which is, I think, different. And that's what I think the real issue is. You know, does that make sense? When I'm, I'm making that distinction between like the formal and the and the content with this this issue. Yeah, and I think you know a l- large part of the problem just comes from that we just don't really understand how to deal with the dynamics of um, intellectual intellectual uh, sort of discussion and production over like the internet where everybody sees it Um, it changes the way that we say and do things um, but then we're not really sure how to like produce norms around how that stuff works right and so oftentimes it comes out in the form of like like overbearing over um yeah overbearing criticism when really if this is the kind of thing you were discussing in the seminar room or just like at the bar or whatever you would probably be more um, epistemically humble and be willing to say like well, what do you mean by that and why do you think that's a good thing to do and like what's your plan here and why do you how does this square with what you talked about and did and you're committed to previously and you would do that with somebody that you were looking at face to face right because you sort of you see their face you think of them as a human being and you think oh they have sort of a, um, a series of intentions behind this action or, or this you know speech act or whatever and I kind of want to dive in and figure out what it is and that whole investigatory like um, that process of, of uh, excavation um, of intentions and desires and principles and stuff just goes out the window when you're looking at a tweet and you can just um, sort of act like it's a, it exists in isolation from everything else in the world um, uh, as an individual speech act and then just dissect it, right, as a surgeon, yeah. like intellectual surgeon. And that's just not, it's not a uh, mature way of engaging in critique, but it's kind of the one that's, um, emphasized through, you know, Twitter. Yeah. And this might be a weakness of myself. I've thought about this for years and done a lot of self-examination on this, but I'm not a fan. And what I mean by that is like, there's one sports team that I actually give a shit about and it's the Lakers. And even that, to be completely honest, bro, like when Michael Jordan won in 91, like I'm cool with that. Like, (laughs) like I'm cool with him beating my team like like that's fine like i'm not really invested in the fandom i have never been kind of committed to those things now maybe because well, you're polyamorous dude I, I am i am fucking polyamorous with everything <laughs> i'm i'm polyeros bro my desires are like just <laughs> you know my desires are just fragmented and so maybe this is also the the problem too is that when somebody says something like that, I'm just like, oh my God, you're just such a fangirl. And I just don't, like, I like I don't get Trekkies. I don't get people who love Star Wars. Like, I don't get people who have, like, like the favorite director ever. Like, I was just talking with my homie Kier, and he's talking about, like, his favorite directors in different countries. Like, my favorite director? Like, my favorite director right at this moment? Or, like, my favorite director? Like, I am such a fucking leaf blowing in the wind with these things that... I am like I like have visceral reactions when people are so stringently committed to their team, right? And and then this is weird because then it's like, well, does that fit with everything? Like, I love my mom and like I'm committed to loving my mom and my grandma and um I've been committed to academics, but in a weird way, right? Like like I'm not the best academic in the sense that I don't wear like the tie and the fucking patched jackets and carry a briefcase i've got a fucking bleached mohawk and a huge ass beard and tattoos all over and i swear when i give conference presentations like i don't know man like i i'm 
it's just this weird, I've always been this way. Even in high school, like I didn't hang out with, I had my friends, I had my best friends that I hung out with all the time. But like, I, I, I just had a really difficult time. Like I wasn't the jock. I wasn't the theater person. I wasn't the this. I wasn't, I kind of floated and I've always floated. And in one sense, it's good because I, I can communicate with anybody in any situation. I can hang out with douchey finance bros. I can hang out with surfer dudes. I can hang out with geographers. I can hang out with like environmental activists. I can hang out with just the random old dude at the bar who's like a former union guy. I mean, like, and I can enjoy all of those spaces. And so maybe it's just something about my, my personal makeup. But that when, when I sense that rigidity, it just makes my skin crawl. Okay, so this is an issue that I'm really interested in, especially when it comes to like aesthetic stuff. But I think it applies um, to the political ideolog- ideological realm as well. Um, so you know, um, and, and especially to do with this uh, discussion of like polyamory when it comes to like rec- the recognition of things that are valuable in the world, um, yeah. uh, polyvaluation or. or that's not even appropriate either because that's like the creation of values. Um, we'll have to think of a term for it. But, you know, a lot of people, especially in like music and movie and film criticism and stuff like that, and I especially see it since I'm more invested in music, uh, music criticism, there's this recognition that the um, tastes and uh, likes of, of various people is so different that we don't want to get to the point where we're just talking about um, like music criticism as being the description of uh, the objective values in the thing that I'm criticizing, because that kind of sounds like you're saying, if you don't like this, then you're an idiot or you're right. um, lacking right, right. some intellectual rigor. And so music criticism tends to devolve into this, like I'm describing my own experience, right? And this, the, like the apotheosis of this is the YouTube reaction video, which is mm-hmm. basically just, this is me listening to Sergeant Peppers for the first time and reacting <laughs> to it on the fly. Right. right? And it's like, like that's somehow intellectually, uh, satisfying in any way. It's of course not, right? Um, and I think the, the issue there is just we have this assumption that if something is considered objectively valuable, then you're an idiot if you don't recognize it. And that's just an ignorance of like the capacity of human beings to like everything that they can like, right? This assumption that if you're really going to be rigorous in terms of um, like your consumption of art, you have to like all the things, right? Which is just stupid. Like no one thinks that. We should just be humble enough to admit that we're not going to be able to value all the things in the world that deserve value, right? And there's some sort of division that has to happen there, and that's totally fine. And that's why you can have expertise in a thing um, and actually recognize the um, objective features of it that are valuable without sort of hammering home that if someone disagrees or doesn't understand, then they're therefore stupid, right? That's just some like a rat race for becoming the most intellectual person in the world, and that's the problem right that's just a stupid thing to value um and so i think that you know when you're talking about like someone who like you is more polyamorous in terms of the things that you're gonna find value in that's totally appropriate as long as it's you know actually recognizing the value in those things right um that can sort of devolve into a i'm never gonna really be invested in anything because i just can't actually commit right which is not what you're doing because you actually get deeply invested in each of the things that that you love. You just love them for a little bit of time and then you move on to the next thing, right? Um, <laughs> which is great because you can actually get – there's so much out there to value, right, that uh, you get these you know, new experiences over and over again. And the reverse side can be problematic as well when it's – you get so invested um, in one singular, singular thing of value that you end up like – 
like uh, sort of investing your own identity into it, right? It forms your mm. identity and the way you think about yourself, your own self-conception, such that you're not really even enjoying it or, or sort of experiencing it in terms of its actual value, but really just sort of reflecting yourself onto the thing, right? And sort of just becoming yeah. like solipsistic in the whole process. And fandom can absolutely get that way to the point where you're not even willing to admit the thing is sort of um, could be better or sort of admit faults in the thing because your whole identity is invested into it. And to admit that there's a fault in it is to admit that you sort of are valuing a thing that's not of value and then therefore you're stupid or something like that. Uh, and that's very problematic as well, right? There has to be some sense in which you can um, value things, but also admit that they have faults and they have moments of, or, you know, spaces of disvalue um, without sort of being in so monogamous to the point where it's like sl slavish devotion, which is not a healthy way of valuing things. I think your example of, of sort of, you know, fandom and basketball is a great example of that, right? I, when I was a kid, I was taught, you know, it wasn't taught necessarily, but because I was a Laker fan, that became like everything to me. I just, I only cared about the Lakers. Uh, my mom used to say that when they were down in the fourth quarter, I would go into my room and pray during commercials <laughs> that they would win. And that's just, you know, cute kid stuff. But that actually, I realized now as an adult, that hurt my enjoyment of the thing that I actually love because I was upset when the Lakers lost. And of course they would lose more than, you know, in terms of like winning the championship, as much as they won a lot of championships, they ended up, you know, not winning more than they'd won. Um, and that ends up with unnecessary suffering. Right. And I didn't get to enjoy in the nineties watching Jordan um, because I hated him and I wanted him to lose. I didn't get to enjoy someone who I think mm. would have been one of my favorite players and Steve Nash um, because mm. I hated the Suns so much because they were, you know, rivals of the Lakers. And that sucks. Like, I'm watching The Last Dance now, and we're talking about this because it's on our mind. And I can appreciate um, all the incredible things that the Bulls did and their uniqueness and stuff like that without having to root against them and just caring about the actual things of value. And that's the basketball and the personalities and the individuals. And that's such mm. a more healthy and better way of experiencing the world, you know? See, this is a very sort of, like, affirmational um, ethic, I think, that, that really, I think, is why I've been attracted to, like, the Nietzsche, Deleuze, and even, I would say, the Sartrean kind of way of doing things. And um, it's especially a certain reading of, of Sartre, my, my reading of Sartre, but particularly, like, the issue of... Um, uh, like dissolving what Sartre refers to as seriality, which we might refer to as like mimetic desire or uh, you could call it bad faith in like the earlier Sartrean phenomenological writings. This idea that uh, you are kind of like neglecting your freedom to kind of choose within the moment. And when you commit yourself to that identity that you have kind of like labeled yourself as like, I am X. Once you are X, then you are living in bad faith. He talks about the waiter who is like playing the role of the waiter. He's like reified himself in a way. And I'm like, maybe that's why I'm so attracted to Sartre's philosophy. And then, of course, this like affirmational idea that I can enjoy the Chicago Bulls, I can enjoy the Phoenix Suns while also, you know, still having a place in my heart for the Lakers and and still rooting for the Lakers. But my question is, is why do I love the Lakers? And I think the reason I love the Lakers is because my dad loved the Lakers. Yeah, right? it's exactly. It's, a, it, it's nostalgic and you feel like the familial bond with other people. It doesn't That's have it. to be because, because they have to win or the world sucks. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And I can enjoy in that connection with my city with my hometown, you know, with my family, um, with my friends, I can enjoy in that. Well, at the same time, I can go to the bar 
and I can watch the uh, I can watch the rival team or whatever fighter or whatever without like somehow I don't know with, with it like dampening my mood and I think this actually works because uh, in like a, in a philosophical sense in the sense that I I'm really good at um, not imposing my abstraction or my static concept onto the thing, but I'm pretty good at kind of, I'm obviously going to have presuppositions, I'm going to have assumptions, so I'm going to have some place of abstraction from which I am operating, but I'm going to be able to meet the event, whatever that event is, and somehow I'm going to allow the event to speak to me in a way that is excessive of what I'm imposing onto it. There's there's always a push and a pull, but there's some sort of creative act, I think, with every encounter that I have with these things where I am being transformed. And I may come out of it and be like, oh, I learned something new. And I don't mean that in like an intellectual sense, but like I gained an appreciation or I learned something about how the body moves. And it may be unconscious or like pre-conscious or whatever. It doesn't have to be always this like intellectually formed, theoretical, conceptual thing but I go into these events and I think I'm constantly like meeting the event in the middle almost in like this space that is suspended right like if the event is on one side of the divide and I'm on the other side of the divide with my presuppositions and there's like the no man's land in the middle it's like we battle in that no man's land and um, then go back to our side once the event is over but I'm changed and I've always been very good at this and I think it's a really interesting thing that I've noticed about myself that I also have noticed that a lot of other people don't operate that way. And and then at the same time, I don't want to like shit on somebody who doesn't operate that way. But at the same time, I really, I wonder like, not am I defective, but like, <laughs> but like, like in some ways there probably is something bad about being as polyamorous as you put it, as I am. And in some ways there's probably something good about that. Um... And I guess I wonder what can I learn then from other individuals while at the same time, like who don't operate that way, while at the same time, like showing the joys that I get from being able to encounter these events in the way that I've just described, you know? And yeah, I mean, and I, it seems to me. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead, finish up. Yeah. No, no. And I think that's what I kind of, when I talk about this critique of the politics of certainty versus the politics of uncertainty, it's that that I'm trying to get at. Yeah. yeah, I mean the the polyamory and the and the sort of uncertainty is definitely not going to be on the um, the pitfall of that would just be something like you only engage in things superficially, you never really delve to the deepest part or deepest depths of their value, and so you never really recognize the true value or appreciate the true value of the thing, right? Um, that's sort of the person who never really commits to anything, um, to engaging right. in anything, whether it's aesthetic, political relationships, or otherwise, right? Um, and of course, the, the flip side is when you engage in something so much that you end up just identifying yourself with it such that you're not really experiencing the true depths of it either because you're really just experiencing yourself. It's a solipsistic thing. Exactly. I really like the term, and you used it there, and I use it a lot recently, appreciation. Because there's something about experience of the world, whether it's political, aesthetic, or otherwise, that um, enjoyment's like the key term that we use for experience of the world is like the, the sort of standard of good experience or whatever. And that's, of course, I think it's both in one realm passive because it's like you're perceiving a thing from the world, but then, and that's problematic. But I think actually, even though it has that passive connotation to it, it's really more like um, 
like you're taking the it's really more active and like a almost like a like a domineering way where it's like you take the thing and you stick a syringe in it and you extract the enjoyment from it and then you throw it hmm. away hmm. right and that itself is also i think more on this like um this this sense of like solipsism where it's just it's just me that exists and i take things from the world um to use for myself and then i leave them behind right and mm. then you know when your favorite band comes out with a shitty album or your favorite director comes out with a shitty film or um or something that comes your way um ideologically is unfavorable then you sort of get upset because i'm used to i'm used to extracting enjoyment from this thing and now it's empty it's just an empty mm. dead shell or whatever um and that's why you get so upset with it because you don't get your high when you expect it and that's obviously unhealthy and problematic and bad um and there, there has to be some way to actually find this point where you can experience the world and, and really just appreciate the the depth of the goodness that's in whatever particular thing without becoming so invested that it's you know obsession or domineering in whatever way. Um, that's a really hard balance to find, right? Because I think that we're predisposed towards one or the other, if not both, of the bad forms. Um, for various reasons, I, for one, am obviously predisposed more towards the identify, the like identifying um, mode or routes. Like I, I have a nominal favorite band and favorite movie and <laughs> and stuff like that. And so, uh, are those things actually my favorite? Like, do I get the most enjoyment out of them? Probably not. I mean, that's not what I mean when I say favorite band. It's more like the band that I I, I want to think of myself as being most aligned with in whatever aesthetic mm. sense or something like that, right? Um, and so that can be a problem if that ends up sort of affecting the way that you experience the rest of the world, right? That's sort of like an obsession thing where, you know, it's it's like getting jealous when someone's flirting with your, you know, girlfriend or boyfriend or wife or husband or whatever. When it's like, are you getting upset because you think that like your your spouse is like ready to cheat on you? Or are you getting upset because this is person's like your property and no one else gets to enjoy them but you? Because those are both like really shitty ways of thinking about other people, and and actually show that you don't truly have a, a deep affection and an understanding and recognition and appreciation of that person's value if you're acting that way. Mm. It's just evidence of okay. pathology, really. Totally. So now here's the more. I would I I can hear somebody saying, or I'm even saying. So then, what about critique? Right, like, isn't the kind of left position, anti-capitalist position, isn't there a really rich philosophical tradition that is characterized by critique? And how do you have critique if you don't have a stringent position from which you are articulating your criticism or towards which you are trying to get beyond as you're hammering the target of the critique? So does it not necessitate a little bit more of a, a strong identity or a strong attachment to a position? And this is one of the things that I find really interesting, especially since I've been spending more time in the world of social science. But social scientists are much more, um, they're much more willing, it seems, to like hold on to their discipline or their sub-discipline. Like, I am a sociologist that draws from the quantitative uh, methods of X, Y, and Z. Or I need to use a qualitative approach. Or I need to do this. But it's almost like they're checking themselves in their disciplinary measures so that they can make sure that they do the thing they need to do so they can stick within the domain that they identify themselves within. 
you know? Like, now I'm not saying that you don't get this in philosophy, because you do. When people are like, I'm a Derridian, or I'm a Sartrean, or, or I'm a whateverian, you know? You get that as well. But it's interesting in sociology, or in, uh, in the social sciences, it seems to affect methodology much more, because they're much more concerned with methodology, I think, than a lot of times, especially continental philosophers, at least. At least consciously so. Yeah, I mean, I think that this idea of, of criticism, I mean, criticism, as you know, you tell any you know, first year uh, critical thinking student, criticism is not being negative towards a thing or not liking a thing or expressing mm-hmm. distaste for a thing, right? Criticism is associated with like analysis, right? And that's about getting to the roots in, of things and discerning um, the features and qualities of a thing, right? It's about really understanding a thing to its deepest level. That's what criticism is, right? So it can be positive or negatively balanced or not, you know, neutrally balanced in that sense. And um, the idea that critique is simply about like bludgeoning an existing, uh, uh, like, like existing intellectual work with like my ideological hammer or whatever is really just more in line with like the you know, criticism as disliking a thing or having distaste towards a thing. And that's just not what criticism is, right? It's about deep understanding. And I think that's perfectly in line with the kind of thing that we're talking about, where these um, these trajectories and these inclinations that's both the sort of polyamorous and the you know monogamous or whatever um, trajectories, these routes that they take can be problematic because they're not really about deeply understanding the thing. They're either about self-identification and sort of covering over your own neuroses in one respect or... Um, sort of the uh, um, fear of like commitment towards really understanding a thing for fear of missing out on other cool things or or some focus on like um, superficial or perverse enjoyment over real deep intimate understanding right um, so yeah I think that that yeah if you want to talk about criticism I think that the view that we're talking about is much more aligned with a with a like a classical and a deep rooted notion of what criticism actually uh, or what actually is entailed in criticism. Hmm. Yeah, so then I guess my question would be is, and this is just putting it to myself as well, so then, okay, we get it, frustrated with the idea of a politics of certainty, what the fuck would a politics of uncertainty actually be? Is it just simply, like, open-ended, deep understanding of what society could be, how society functions? Is it... um is it something about like coalescing around a common disposition? Like this is what I don't fully understand, but I kind of think it has something to do with with this, with being kind of polyamorous. And part of the reason I think this is because like like I was thinking about it today. I was just going to like jokingly tweet out like confession, I'm probably going to lose a lot of followers, but I'm probably more of an anarchist than I am a socialist, so sorry. Um but like you know, there, there are certain things that I draw from that I don't think should be off the table for us that unfortunately, and maybe it's just exacerbated in the world of online discourse, but I don't necessarily think so. Because even in the world of activism where I've been in person, there's still a lot of restriction. I think there's just something about human beings and how we tend to operate that, you know, we're fucking neurotic, man. Um, but... But what would it look like to actually kind of um, like live according to a type of what I would like pithily describe as a politics of uncertainty? You know, like what, what does that even mean? Yeah, I think there's there's some analogy here between this idea we we're talking about earlier in terms of how principles work. And that's 
you know, obviously you don't want the politics of uncertainty to be just the reverse side of the politics of certainty, where you bludgeon someone with the uncertainty rather than with your certainty, <laughs> right? Um, that seems like a mistake just on the other side of the coin, right? So there's some sense in which I think the hardest part of this is just to realize that we're talking all about how our inclinations direct us towards certain things and there's pitfalls to those um, inclinations and stuff like that, that it's very difficult, if, if not impossible, to understand your intentions in uh, fully in any area, right? Especially when it comes to the really... Um, you know, like important, you know, social and political stuff. And so it's, it's, there's some understanding that, you know, we're never going to fully know what we know or what we're sure of, what we're not and why we um, take certain positions and don't. And if we're really being, you know, responsive to the evidence and, um, and deep understanding, or if we're actually just, you know, engaging in some like, you know, perverse pathological neurosis that we have. Um, But to be aware of the fact that that's the case, like be aware of, like where it is that your inclinations direct you towards, right? Some sort of like, you know, self-knowledge or self-understanding or self-awareness um, that does actually, I think, it helps you sort of correct for your own um, uh, natural mistakes, right? The things that you, you you tend to drift towards. And that's a really important thing just to have as like a, as like a psychological factor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, self-awareness is, you know, like a necessary condition for like healthy living in any way, right? Psychologically. Um, but I think it's also in like the intellectual realm. It's super important. Um, otherwise, you you sort of you can be very successful, right? Um, like diving uh, uh, deep down into the into the pool and sort of investing yourself entirely in one area or whatever, or you know, doing the reverse and just being in every area at once. Um, but to be, if you want to do like really good work and actually deeply understand things, like if you find those things objectively valuable, whether or not you're successful or recognized as a um, great thinker or whatever, um, and I think that's the reason why we all care about these things, right? Is because we think that they're valuable in the first place. Like everyone was a you know philosophy 101 student and was just intrigued by these ideas and thought that they were <laughs> valuable to think about in and of themselves, right? That's how everyone gets into this shit. Yeah, you only get alienated from that later on, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, if you want to get back to that, you know, it's a naive understanding, but I think it's it's beautiful for a reason because it's the truest way of dealing with uh, intellectual work and with um, the appreciation of knowledge. If you want to get back to that, then there has to be this like corrective self awareness or something. I think that um, the politics of uncertainty would be more like one of these principles, where it's not like this tells me what to think in every situation and to always realize. And every moment, you know, I'm actually unsure about this. I don't have the certainty that I think I do. But really just to kind of help guide and explain, well, why do I think this way? And um, is this really just because of the intellectual bludgeon that I, you know, have attached to my back or whatever? Um, not to sort of uh, make you not care about things and to sort of like produce apathy in you. But to, because I don't think it'll do that if it's done honestly and with the intent of, of deep understanding. If the intention is, is deep understanding, then it's going to be always directed towards actually trying to have that deep understanding and not towards like, you know, um, being apathetic about things and not caring about anything overall and not having any commitments. Hmm. And, and at the risk of overstating it, like I kind of think that actually a rationality that is so constituted, I think that it actually would be a type of legitimately revolutionary way of being in the world. Because I'm trying to think here, like another uh, manifestation of the politics of certainty 
is Western liberal democracy, right? It operates according to certain juridico-political technologies that frame things, that uh, have to be enforced, legitimated. Um, they can only change within certain confines. Um, they they kind of like command or demand fidelity. And so it just seems to me that there's... Now, it doesn't operate like uh, typical authoritarian like dictators or something like that. But it still operates according to a certain type of control, right? And and so I wonder if there isn't something inherently, quote-unquote, certain about, and then I would say restrictive and uh, ideological and dogmatic and all of this stuff, about, like, Western liberal capitalist democracies, if it doesn't essentially operate according to that. And that actually, if you were to pause... If you were to stop, if you were to slow down, that you fuck with the kind of like temporal constitutive components that make the hegemon hegemonic and that you actually like pull the brakes of history in a sort of Benjaminian sense, right? Like if thinking in this way of pausing and reflecting and investigating, deep understanding, experimenting with things that you think and that we do, with our tactics, with our strategies, um, all these things, if you do that, like that's almost constitutively other. It's constitutively revolutionary, you know? The problem is, is that it's not politics in the way we think about politics. Now, some people might say, oh, this sounds dangerously close to a type of like horizontal micro-politics, kind of like anarchism. And and I get that, um, but I guess I'm just trying to think through, is there a type of value even in that, um, if you want to call it, it's a sort of like micro-political, experimental understanding um, of what politics might be? You know, I'm thinking like, so what's the difference between somebody who has a transformative experience that sets them on a path that um, is lifelong versus someone who has a transformative experience and that they later realize was extremely perverse and unhealthy and they reject it. Like someone who, like our examples obviously would be like when you read that book that transformed your thinking and made you see the world in a totally different way and how you mm -hmm. had this like, you know, intense um, identification with that experience and then you, you sort of recognize that as like the moment where yourself was first beginning to be formed or something like that versus someone who like gets involved in like Nazism or some shit like that like far right shit and then later realizes they gotta get out of that because it's because it's awful like those two people would look at their original forming experience very differently in retrospect right even if they were both similarly like enjoyable or, or transformative and positive positively balanced and had great feelings associated with them originally, right? And the reason is because it's not the experience itself that you care about. Like, you don't want to, like, like get an injection of that experience again, right? That's kind of like, like a perverse form of, like, nostalgia is, right? Just, like, injecting mm -hmm. you with the experience you once had so you can get that feeling again. But we don't actually... That's not actually what we appreciate, right? What we appreciate is how we were related to the world in an important way and how we, like, discovered a thing. Or, or something was revealed to us about the world that we had great appreciation for, right? And all great experiences are really like that in some way. 
whether it's aesthetic, political, or otherwise. And it seems like the notion that we wouldn't want to just always have that, <laughs> not just mm. always have the experience of transformation as if it was some kind of drug you could just inject, right? But instead to always be transforming, right? Why would, why would that be bad? The only reason it would be bad is if you feel so identified and invested with your current set of ideological presuppositions that you fear changing them mm. as if it would be a waste what you've done and thought about and were devoted to before. And mm. that's just absurd upon reflection, right? Because mm. that means it wasn't really an investment in you know, appreciation of, of whatever exists in the world. It was more about like forming your identity in a safe way that you feel like you're you know, in your cocoon and you don't have to really experience the world deeply anymore. Um, yeah, and I mean, that's a, that's a struggle for me. And I think something I appreciate about you, Austin, is that you do seem to have um, this like natural inclination, um, and it's a recognized one too. It's not just like you do it, you know, um, like a like the beautiful soul or something. But <laughs> you actually do want to go out and experience all the good things in the world and constantly be transformed. Like every week, it seems <laughs> like you come to either me or the podcast or Twitter or whatever, and like I just found this new thing and it's rocked my world. And it's amazing, <laughs> right? And it's totally transformed my thinking. And you're kind of overreacting because it's your personality to, to, to you know, um, hyperbolize like that, right? Mm. But, um, but there's some sense in which that really is a great thing. Um, and it's not evidence of, like, not truly caring about the things you experienced before. Because there's a trajectory there, right? There's, like, more and more deep understanding. And your new transformations affect the way you think about your previous transformations mm. in a really, like, helpful and life-affirming way. Um, yeah. That's, that's some cool shit, man. You know what I wonder? I wonder if in a superficial, you know, late neoliberal world, we're really presented with two common tendencies. One is just the consumption of these things for fleeting pleasure, right? And that's what you were talking about. It's just chasing the transformation. And you see this so much online with like people who are fitness gurus or they are on paleo diets or they've gone vegan or gluten-free or whatever their thing is, they're chasing the Saul on the road to Damascus moment, right? They're chasing the moment, the ecstasy. But the problem is, is it's kind of like just a purely hedonistic pleasure that they're seeking because maybe they've tasted that kind of height before the romance the the blind not the blind date the love at first sight the you know the the really heightened sexual encounter or whatever it is and we live in a culture that just pumps that shit out man right and it feels mm -hmm. good you know those dopamine rushes but we live in a world that's just encouraging that and encouraging that and encouraging that and then maybe the flip side of that is because we're so groundless in that state, that common state that we all kind of share, that we all exist in, that superficial, what Byung-Chul Han refers to as the inferno of the same, just this pure positivity culture, right? Is that oftentimes people then latch on to something to try to ground their meaning. So this actually really fits, I think, well with like Leotard's critique of the postmodern condition, is in this world of like, delegitimized identities and states and religion what the fuck do you have to hold on to well one of the things you can hold on to is like nationalism your national identity religion 
Um, it can be your political position. I'm a Marxist. I'm a Democrat. Vote blue no matter who kind of shit. Or I'm a Trumper, whatever, you know, like MAGA guy. Um, it could be all kinds of other things that you hold. I'm a bowler. I'm a surfer. This is my thing. I'm a Laker fan, whatever. And you hold on to those things to try to like counterbalance the fragmentation that we're experiencing otherwise. But I think the way that you just described it is what what I'm kind of trying to articulate with this idea of this uncertainty is maybe not middle ground, but a third option, right? Where it isn't just a superficial seeking of pleasure as like the transformative event, but rather it's the attachment that comes on the other side of that. It's really investing myself and affirming and connecting and appreciating, if you will, difference. And and I think that is, fuck, I mean, that's very kind of like Deleuzian in ethical formulation now that I think about it. But I think that's kind of like the idea that I'm I'm striving towards or that I'm trying to ultimately articulate, you know? Yeah, and I think there's a really strong um, connection here between like the political ethical realm and the sort of uh, like aesthetic um, experience, like pure individual experiential realm. Like, you know, I'm reading a book by Mary Shelley right now that was written like the early to mid 1800s. And one thing that I'm, I'm getting from this that I think is so interesting is that, you know, maybe it's just the literature and it's just the fiction. And this wasn't really the way things were, but there's some sense in which a transformative experience uh, for someone in not necessarily pre-capitalist, but, you know, pre-late capitalist or whatever, um, before the like massive reproduction of pleasurable experiences. That Victorian today, capitalist. Right? Yeah. Yeah. As much as suffering that comes from a lot of the social order that exists there, which of course there was, um, there's some sense in which there's like this, there's a level and depth of experience that's just totally alien to me. And I think to most people today, in that you could have a thing that rocks your world, whether it's a political movement, a piece of music, a book, whatever, right? A, a, like an individual romantic episode or whatever, that it just changes who you are and you feel it to a depth that's just, I can't even connect to. It's like, wow, this is just described in this. It's, it's almost so transformative it's painful like you feel yourself being molded by a thing outside of you and you're like hurting your organs because they're being pushed and pulled almost against your will in a way and it's uncomfortable to think about because it's just not the way that we're supposed to experience things today which is to like you know uh, excavate the enjoyment from them and then throw them away right just get what you want and leave and there's something totally unsustainable about the way we experience um I think anything today, aesthetic or political or, you know, relationships, whatever, um, because we're not really connecting to this like sense of deep understanding that I think we're talking about because it's just get the superficial uh, whipped cream off the top and then eat it and then move on. You're not really experiencing the thing in a you know, truly in-depth way. And that's not going to sustain you at all. It's not going to like help you be motivated and propelled towards what really matters and what's really important to you, even if you assent to that intellectually. You know, I think when we've talked a lot about how, you know, the Bernie movement, even though Bernie's going to be the, you know, twice loser of the primary, um, is so formative is because it tabbed into this. Like when Bernie says, are you willing to fight for someone you don't know? Nobody else is going to say that. And even if they did, they would be parroting it in a way that was obviously rhetorical. When mm -hmm. he said it, it felt like a, almost like accusatory, not in the sense of like he's shaming you. In the sense of holy shit, like 
I didn't think that politics was about that. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I thought it was about identity and about like the policies that I want and shit like that. But no, this is about how are you actually going to relate to people? Like what really fucking matters mm-hmm. in social life? And that gets to the heart of that. And I don't think that necessarily the Bernie movement like transformed politics in that way. But I think it was hinting at that in a way that nothing else even tries to. Most things are afraid to hint towards that because you know it what? can kind of scare people. It, I guarantee you it transformed a lot of people though, man. You in, know? in a scary way, right? You feel this like, I'm kind of afraid of how that makes me think. Mm. You know what? One thing, one thing it absolutely does is it makes me think how the fuck can I ever support another candidate who doesn't have even that as like the the ceiling i'm sorry the floor right like that's the floor now that's the standard now like if it goes below that then i can't i I, like what the fuck like i can't i can't like it would be a total violation of everything that stirs within me you know so i mean what it means what it means is like you could talk about harm reduction as a principle that you follow for you know your your voting decisions or whatever and that's fine whatever but you're not going to like get invested in the campaign. No. You're not going to like like be out there and, and like be on the on the stand for somebody, right? And representing them no. unless they have that as their floor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. You were talking about, um, and this is the last thing I'll say because we probably got to wrap up the main segment here. You were talking about like those transformative events that like are so intense they hurt. I have that happen all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't uh, live like that, man. <laughs> yeah. I know. I tweeted one time, uh, jokingly, and I will never forget this, and I don't know why, but I was actually in Spain, and I uh, I met this girl, and we had this like crazy whirlwind romance thing, but uh, it fucking hurt, man. It was so beautiful, and I actually tweeted, and uh, I was just totally like vague about it, but I was like, "Have you ever been so happy that it hurts?" And I think it was Michael Burns that responded back. He's like, "He's like, no, but I'm glad to see they have ecstasy wherever you are." <laughs> uh, and That's I was that so call me by your name shit, dude. Yeah. That's why I love that movie so much, man. It just it captured the idea of like a transformative experience doesn't have to be a pleasurable one. Mm. Right? It doesn't it's gonna involve pleasure, right? Obviously. Otherwise it would be, you know, meaningless. But um it's not just gonna be about like did did I get as much out of that as I wanted to or something. Like it, it was transformative and that included lots of suffering and pain, but in a sense that was appropriate. Because mm. of the you know uh, forming content of the experience, and I don't mm. I don't think that's a that's a pretty it's both alien and unpopular because that can strike fear in people given that we're you know from a very early age developed in such a way that we're just supposed to seek pleasure out of everything. Yeah, and then you know what too, we're also taught not to pursue that feeling when it does emerge, and so it's almost like we transform it into the superficial. Because that's all we can allow it to be. And I don't know if it's, it's not like it's a conscious thing, but it's, you know, some sort of ideological structural thing, but it's, it becomes almost an incapacity. Like we are incapable of truly catching on to that and sinking our hooks into it and letting it pull us even deeper. And that's what I want. I just got chills thinking about that. But like, that's it, you know, (laughs) is, is to let it like just fucking we can we can latch onto it and it just rips us and people talk about this shit on instagram like 
having these crazy experiences and like these transformative things. But I just don't ever buy it because the way they talk about it, it's always wrapped in the garb of late neoliberal positivity, hustle culture, you know, like go make Monday your bitch kind of um, fire festival shit, you know? And it's like just becoming a sexy person or accumulating more. Like, go achieve your dreams, bro. Like, okay, this is, I'm totally going to go on a tangent now. I'm sorry. I said the last thing, or that was the last thing I was going to say, but I just got to say this because I thought it was so <laughs> fucking hilarious. But do you know who the comedian Chris D'Elia is? I have no idea. So I think he's funny as fuck, okay? Um, but he did, uh, he did a special. I didn't watch his special, but I watched a little clip of it. And in it, he's talking about the people that are like these like life coaches and these fitness gurus and shit like that. And his whole routine is basically like, like, you're not a fucking warrior, bro, but you act like you're a warrior. Like, like, bro, you gotta like make shit happen. And, And he's like going through all the stupid cliches. And of course he's like joking around. He's like, you know, like go forward, don't stop, push through the end, never, never say die, never. And he's just going off and he's like listing all of these things. And he's being over the top, but honestly, not really, because that is literally the shit that you constantly see. If you just scroll through Instagram of all of these fucking fitness coaches and life coaches and well-being people, and it's just so fucking cliched nonsense, and it's all wrapped in the same stuff, man. They're all saying the same thing. So when they preach to me, They've reached some transformation and they've followed their dreams and they've found their joy or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, dude, you haven't. This is bullshit. You're still just buying into this like commodified, pleasure-seeking, hedonistic superficiality. And how do I know? Because the next month, you're just talking about how that didn't make you happy and you're pursuing some other thing. Or the next year, you've changed your brand again. And I'm like, or you get found out that you're actually like not really succeeding in the thing that you're claiming to succeed and you're just selling people on some bullshit brand. Now, I'm not shitting on you because you haven't found happiness. That's not my point. My point is it's just all this like commodified branding bullshit that everybody is just sharing with each other and it turns into this like weird mimetic inferno of the same and I can't fucking stand it, bro. It's driving me mad. Like, I don't know. I'm sorry. That yeah, was I mean, my rant. you know, yeah. no, I, I totally agree. And you know what's so absurd about that kind of stuff is the the sort of rhetoric and the presentation is it, the reason it's absurd is because it's misaligned with the with the value of the end, that's its mm. object, right? Like it's you know make Monday your bitch and and do this shit and like uh, strive and let no one you know hold you down and shit like that. It's like, well, what's the wh- what are they holding you down from? Like, <laughs> right. wh- what is the what what is contained or entailed in Monday that you're making your bitch? And it's like getting your 30 minute session of crossfit done that's right so bro you have like the beach bod and it's like well why is that valuable well that's right because i like it and it's like well <laughs> obviously the sort of deep understanding thing that we're talking about isn't there and so really you're just trying to get yourself you know irrationally motivated to do a thing that you don't really care that much about or really even know why you would care about it in the first place and so you have to do this like lathering up thing to get yourself motivated every week to do it because you don't truly care about it uh, when yeah. it comes down to it. Uh, and that's what makes the whole thing so absurd because this presentation is necessary to get you whipped up. Like you're getting whipped up for a war and you don't know why you're fighting it. <laughs> that's it, man. Don't let any hold, anybody hold you back from your dreams. Y- your dream was to go on a hike and on the trail like around your suburb, bro? Like that, that's, <laughs> that's your fucking dream, dude? So that you look good in a, in a photograph because you got some abs? Like that's your fucking dream? You got some shitty dreams, dude. <laughs> yeah, get the corporate office job that you want because like the person above you has it and you've never 
really thought about anything else. Like, um, obviously having career goals is fine, right? But it's like, it's, it matters and you'll care about it and you'll be motivated to do it if you actually have understanding of why it's valuable in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, this goes back to uh, kind of the meta ethic thing that you're going to unwrap for us when you finally finish your project in life and you unlock the mysteries for how it is that we should normatively engage in the world, right? I'm working on it. Sweet, man. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and end the, main, uh, end the main segment there, yeah? Yeah. Cool. We'll transition to the sticky leaves now. So this is the sticky leaves. This is the segment. Oh, it's my. I have the sticky leaves. What am I yeah, doing? What are you doing, dude? I'm stepping on my toes. I don't know. So it's a, actually a nice segue because we're talking here about uh, things that are valuable and really understanding them and being trans- transformatively experienced or to be transformed by them. Um, what else does that but the sticky leaves, which are the kinds of things that you find value and meaning in, even if it's possible that we live in a meaningless universe devoid um, of all significance and value. So, Austin, what's doing it for you this week? Bro, it's the best thing in the entire world. I've been surfing a lot. It's totally changed my life. I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> you said that I uh, am overblown and hyperbolic, so... Um... <laughs> no, dude. So, I've been surfing uh, pretty much every day for the last week or so, and I fucking missed this so much. I missed it so much. I forgot how much I missed just being in the water. Um, and I, it, it's amazing. Um, so I kind of have moved out of my old place, at least temporarily. I'm going to be in a, I'm in a time of transition. I'm moving into a new apartment eventually, but for a couple months here, I'm just going to be staying down by the beach in Manly. And, um, I literally have a view of the ocean from my balcony, which is amazing, but it takes me 30 seconds to get to the sand. And so I have just been surfing every single day and taking advantage of it because the beaches are still open here for quote unquote exercise and surfing in Australia is of course the prime exercise, right? It's so cliche, but it's great, dude. It's a phenomenal workout. Uh, I can't swim because all the pools are closed. I can swim in the ocean, which I've done a couple times, which has been great, but I'm fucking terrified of sharks. And I know you would say that surfing too, but like swimming for some reason freaks me out more because, you know, I'm going around like rocks and shit like that. I don't know why it freaks me out more, but... And the surfboard's maybe, a weapon in case you need it. Yeah, and I, and I feel like I got the board for protection. Like I might lose an ankle, like if he comes up and snaps my <laughs> foot, but like when I'm swimming and my torso is just like right there for his teeth. Um, but no, man, it's it's really wonderful. And the thing, I was thinking about it today as I was out for like my evening walk and I was watching some of the the surfers at sunset and uh, I didn't go today. I was letting my body rest, but I was thinking about it today and you know, all those cliches that you hear from people that are trying to be super guru-y in their surf wisdom that's like, you know, you're just like part of the, the, the undulations and the, you, you just like become one with the water and shit like that. You know what, dude? It's all true. It really is fucking true. There is something, one, surfing is hard when you're first learning. And and then even when you're not first learning, to improve your skills. I mean, it's like anything, right? Um, there, there are just levels, levels to get to. So you're always being challenged. So there's always, there's always like a, it's not a frustration, but it's something else. It is a, it's a challenge, but it, 
it like it's a motivation. That's what it is. There's always a motivation that is pulling you to perform better, to fix your balance, to pop up more efficiently, to uh, read read the wave better so that you're in a better position, so you get a better ride, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's always something you can do there. But then at the same time, there are just these moments of of calm and of peace when you're out there, and you are not. Th- it's like we've talked about with anything, like I talked about with swimming, where you are not thinking about your Twitter your email. What you're thinking about is the task at hand, which is, I'm on my board. Here comes a set. Where do I have to be? You know, make sure I'm there. And then of course, the more, the more comfortable you get, the less those like rudimentary thoughts become. And it becomes a little bit more instinctual and automatic, but you're still just thinking about how you, you're thinking about your last wave and what you could do better. And then you're thinking about what you can do here. And then you're trying to just pay attention and just go towards more of a feel. And then I'm sure like if you're fucking Kelly Slater or Gabriel Magina, the like the, the top pros of the world, John John Florence, you know, those guys, they're probably not thinking at all. They're just fucking in a in a state of enjoyment. But when you listen to them talk, they're fucking athletes too. So they are thinking, but they're thinking at a different level, like different from where I'm at, definitely. But there's just something you just get so tuned in, and it's that flow that people talk about, right? Like the flow state. Mm. You just get so tuned in and so disconnected from, you know, the the f- familial problems. And like I got really shitty news. Um, God, I don't remember what. It was a few days ago. I got some really shitty news right before, like literally right as I was about to step onto the sand. And I was like, fuck, man, this is going to ruin my day. This is gonna, And I was like, I'm just going to put this phone away and I'm just going to go out and I'm going to surf and I'll deal with this after. And I went out and I like literally forgot entirely about it, which doesn't happen with so many other activities. So many other activities, it still nags at you, right? Like the bad news nags. But when I'm in the water, when I'm engaged in this activity, I just completely get lost in it. And it's so wonderful. Um, and then there is still, like, I'm still afraid of sharks, bro. And... I, there are times when I'm still looking down at the water and Australian water is really clear and beautiful where I am, especially in Manly. Um, and, you know, you see shadows and shit like that and I get like fucking, you know, like a shiver up my spine. And um, But then at the same time, you see like a ray swim by, like a little stingray swim by, or you see these beautiful fish swing, swim by. Or I've been watching, I love sitting on my board sometimes and watching the seagulls just dive bomb the bait fish. They're these tiny little schools of, and they just fucking, and it's not like just every once in a while. These seagulls are boom, 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 just hitting these schools of bait fish. And it's just so interesting to just be absorbed in an ecosystem is kind of what it is. And you are a participant when you're surfing in that ecosystem just in a different way. And you have your your role, if you will, you know? Um, and I don't know, man. I just fucking love it. And I just want to say, anyone out there who has wanted to surf, fucking do it. Like, get a longboard, get a foam board, go out there in the white water, take some classes from like a little surf school instructor, and just do it. You might be intimidated, especially if you're not a great swimmer, but just stay in the shallow and just just don't worry about like trying to catch a wave that hasn't already broken, like while it's while it's cresting or anything like that. Just fucking ride the white water and just do it because it is so interesting and challenging and frustrating and motivating and fun, and it's also a fucking phenomenal workout. Like the reason I didn't surf today really is just because my back and my shoulders are and my my core, my abs are so fucking tight. I was like, I gotta get myself a day of rest. So. That's my sticky leaves, man. I've just been uh, a fish boy this past little while. Did you surf a lot in the OC back in the day? So I grew up bodyboarding all the time. That was my thing. I bodyboarded. 
and I didn't really have anybody to teach me surfing. Like my mom didn't surf and I was really mostly raised by her, even though on the weekends I would see my dad. But, um, and my dad was a big time surfer, but he never took me surfing. He would take me body surfing because by the time, um, that like I was spending time with him and going to the beach and stuff like that with him, he wasn't surfing anymore. I don't know why he wasn't like he could still surf, but so I used to body surf with him. So that's just where you have just fins. And we would go to this tiny little beach called Crescent Beach in Laguna Beach that uh, is really great for body surfing, but not good for like proper surfing. And so we would body surf. And then when I was with my mom, I would body board. And so those were the things that I did more than anything. And I didn't ever really surf. I kind of did a couple times with friends. And um, and then when I was a teenager, I went with friends a few times. But it was never my thing, man. And I'm actually really mad at myself that I never invested my time in it. Because it's a fucking amazing sport. And, and really, and I'm not just saying this, it's a really amazing culture, man. Like, when you look at athletes in the world... Surfers are some of the coolest humans, <laughs> you know, they're like environmentally conscious, they're super kind and gracious with their competitors, like even the World Surf League, like they're all rooting for each other, they're all friends, you know, it's much more like the modern NBA, where it's like everyone just kind of just bros with each other, I mean not everybody, you know, sometimes you get like the Jimmy Butlers who are like fierce competitors, or the Giannis's who refuses to like practice with other other teams and stuff like that, or other players from other teams and shit, like I still kind of like that too, but in the surfing community, like people are just fucking, like they're just kind of good people, you know? Yeah, there seems to be something about like engaging in, in sporting activity where you're kind of not, it's not conquering nature because that's the wrong it's the wrong term of relation for it, but it's like, in some sense, working with nature, right? Because mm. you're not destroying it or defeating it, right? It's not competitive in that way. You're sort of like, um, uh, I don't know what the term is, like competing in some sense with nature. It just, it develops you psychologically in a way that's makes you way cooler and like a better person than purely <laughs> competing does. against other people where you have to like beat them and humiliate them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting though, isn't it? Like I watch shitloads of surfing I always have like growing up as a kid even though I didn't surf we used to watch surf videos you know and uh I used to have like one of my favorite surfers when I was younger his name's Rob Machado do you know who Rob Machado is uh I don't think so no he used to be known for having like a big ass fro and shit and now he's got like huge long dreadlocks and stuff but he's like an environmental activist and like there's nothing you know what it is there's like nothing threatening about that type of person and I think that's something that I think is really lovely about like surf culture and surf community. Now, I'm not saying that all surfers are nice people. You get these territorial assholes and shit like that. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that probably scared me out of surfing was when I was in Hawaii when I was 11 or 12 years old and I got kicked out of the water by the locals because I didn't really know the rules and I was like just like a young surfer kid and I like fucked up the lineup because there are like rules in the lineup and shit like that and I didn't really understand what I was doing and some guy just said something aggressively to me and it scared me and I was 12 and he was like you know 17 or 18 or something like that probably but in my mind he was like this huge 30 year old fucking UFC fighter bodybuilder guy but um, you know, he was like, you know, get out of my way, kid, or some shit like that. And then I like, I remember I went on the beach and I was all upset and to my mom and shit like that. And I think that kind of freaked me out. So you do find assholes, you know, um, you do find people like that. But for the most part, especially when you get to like the professional level, and I don't know how they are in their personal life, like maybe they're douchebags and shit like that. Douchebags are everywhere. But the way they present themselves, at least, is, uh, is very, to use a cliche and totally ambiguous term, but it fits. 
They're just so chill, man. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever, did you ever grow up surfing or anything like that? Or was that just not your world? No, not at all. I mean, I did, you know, um, growing up in Southern California, you're going to go to the beach a lot. So I do love the beach and, um, I did a lot of boogie boarding when I was like a preteen and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I, I do love body surfing. It's a lot of fun. Um, but not as like a, something I'm really invested in. Yeah. Yeah. I got really invested in, in body surfing and boogie boarding or bodyboarding when I was younger to the point where like I used to have like high quality body boards and I could do tricks and shit like that. Like I could do barrel rolls and 360s and stuff like that. And uh, you get, you know, you have to have fins on to properly be able to actually, you know, catch the wave at the right point and pull shit off. And then same with body surfing. I got really into that. And that was like my, if I was going to wear my badge and identify myself, like that would have been my thing. Like I was very proud of my abilities. But when I look back on it, man, I'm so mad that I didn't fucking surf. Like, I wish I were a really good surfer, and I'm not. I fucking suck, but I have so much fun, and I can get out there, and, you know, I can pop up, and I can stand up, and I can maneuver a little bit and shit like that, but, like, I want to be able to shred the gnar, dude. Yeah, man. <laughs> All right. I will. I will be shredding the gnar. That is my goal. I'm going to be <laughs> I'm gonna be shredding the gnar within two years. Are you going to make mixtapes of it? Fuck yeah, bro. Fuck yeah! Don't don't let your don't let your dreams hold you back, man. Don't let <laughs> go and do yeah, do your thing, dude. What's like your go-to surfer soundtrack? Uh, so there's a band from Hawaii. They're called Pepper. Do you know Pepper? No. <clears throat> okay, everybody, uh, listen to this song. <coughs> Excuse me. It's called "Give It Up," and I'm just gonna sing you a, a little bit of lyrics right now. Okay, <laughs> so. They're kind of like a, a, a reggae punk band, <clears throat> but it goes, It's been a while since I've seen your face. Gotta say that I'm happy to see you come around my place. Yeah, now when you talk about it, I think I know what's coming up next. Just put our minds away and let our hormones do the rest. <laughs> does it seem, does it seem, does it seem like a bad thing? Well, if it is, I'm sorry, miss, but you know I'm just 19. So don't be afraid when my pants start to leak. Drip, 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 drip. You know damn well I'm in my sexual peak. Yeah. Why don't you have some dirty hot sex with me? It ain't like I'm asking you to give it up for free. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we can start it right now. Baby, get on your knees. Don't make me beg again. Girl, I just said please. Yeah, and then it goes on from there. So it's just this <laughs> fucking stupid, like, surfery bro song. But that would be, like, that and then some Homegrown. Homegrown has a song called Surfer Girl that I grew up that I fucking loved. They were a, an Orange County punk band back in the day. Homegrown. Totally underappreciated. So that would be my <laughs> shit. It's like it's like skate punk, pop punky shit, you know? Like, don't give me any of this Jack Johnson-y, acoustic-y shit. That uh, stuff no, doesn't no, make... No. That doesn't make like, me even even though all of his music videos are like surfing and shit, that doesn't make me want to surf. No, it's gotta be like third wave Scott. That's like the go to surfer music. I get that. Although I was walking the other day uh, along the water and some Sufjan came on and he's playing like a little mandolin and I was like, Oh, this is kinda cool. Like this is I would rather have that than the Jack Johnson y <laughs> acoustic y shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then there's some good reggae um, that I can totally that'll that'll get me in the mood. 
Um, I'll tell you this new band that I, that I just came across. They're called, hold on, I got them right here, House of Shem. And uh, they're from New Zealand, but they're a reggae band. And they got a really good song called Anything You Ask For that totally gets me vibing for the beach too. So, But honestly, cool. dude, just like skate punk shit, it's the same shit. Skate punk, snowboard punk, surf punk. That's eh, like the same. <laughs> uh, all right, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode there, yeah? Yeah, dude. Sweet. That was a good example of of uh, your polyamory. It's appropriate <laughs> for this episode. I know. And then the stupid thing is, is like in my mind, I think like, okay, cool. So I'm just going to like move to Bali, right? And surf. And that's just what my life is going to be. Like in my mind, I can totally entertain that. And that's a really amazing life. Just like if I went fishing, I could be like, okay, cool. So I'm just going to move to Mammoth and I'm just going to like fish every day. And <laughs> Right? Or like I read Whitman's poetry and I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm just going to like sit and read poetry forever, right? Like that's just what I'm going to do. It's like... I fantasize that that's like I'm all in, you know. I don't know, fucking psycho. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sweet everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Let us know what your obsessions are. You can tweet us owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can hit us on Insta the same way. You can email us owls at dawnpodcast at gmail dot com. Uh, obviously, as Troy said at the outset, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And uh, we have bonus content and shit like that. I think we're going to be doing a bonus episode uh, here in the uh, short while, too. And don't worry, it won't just be us talking about The Last Dance, even though I'm sure at some point we will do an episode on that. Oh, we'll spend like five episodes on that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and you can support us that way. So that I can go to Bali and surf and then keep just <laughs> providing content and shit like that. And that would be so much better. It'd be better for you guys because I'd be more consistent. And it'd be better for me because then I'd be able to be more consistent. See? it's I, I don't know how that Everybody works. Everybody wins. It works. So, sweet. Well, I guess that's it. Unless there's anything else I forgot to say. Is there anything, Troy? Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? That's for Dania Americanski. Yeah.